I just find that these characters and the trials and tribulations that they go through are just very insightful. It really gives you a bleak, but but also an uplifting portrait of, of the human condition. We're going to see more of the bleakness coming up in the second half, because as you know, like we're on, I think, day 188, maybe, 187. And, um, you know, Napoleon's invasion of 1812 has just started. And, and that's when, you know, things turn south for these Russians. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescu, and this is my podcast, where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before we begin today's discussion, let me mention some books I've been reading. The Plot by Jean Hanf Korlitz, which is about writing and the ownership of a story. Really good. Beautiful Ruins by Jess Walter, fun and also prominently featuring a writer. Mary Carr's The Art of Memoir, great advice as I start my own writing journey. Plunder by Menachem Kaiser, an interesting, very interesting post-Holocaust tale. Michael Lewis's latest, The Premonition, a distressing pandemic story about the failures of the CDC and some real heroes. And then, one of the best books I've ever read, Hemnet, by Maggie O'Farrell, a fictional account of Shakespeare and his family, including his only son, Hemnet. O'Farrell's exquisite detail paints vivid pictures throughout. Loved it. I'm also loving reading Hemingway short stories, one each week, learning a lot from and about this guy. And finally for now, I'm loving reading Tolstoy's great War and Peace, close to 1,400 pages and 361 chapters. Daunting, but not if you read one chapter a day over the course of a year. My guest today, Brian E. Denton, has been reading War and Peace each year for the last eight or nine years, has published a chapter-by-chapter commentary, and is uniquely qualified to discuss this epic novel. Brian, welcome. I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Howard. I'm happy to be here. So before we start discussing the novel, and I really want to talk about the first half of the novel, we've just passed the June 30 half of the year mark and uh, reading a chapter a day. We're now a little more than halfway through the chapters. Now it's July 7, I think, or 6. So before, before we discuss the novel, Tell us about your War and Peace journey. When did you start reading the novel, and did you come up with the idea to read a chapter a day? Okay, so the first time I attempted to read the novel was when I was much younger. I was in high school at the time. My brother had bought me a copy, a nice hardback of the mod translation. And, you know, I started it here and there, never never finished it. And then about, it's actually about 10 years now, I read it through all the way finally, and I just fell in love with it. I thought, it was one of the most fantastic reading experiences of my life. The, the novel touches everything in terms of all, all the characters in it and the plot and the drama, even the philosophy behind it. Um, and so then I thought to myself, well, how am I going to read this book more? Because I want to. And, but it's so long. And you know, I want to read other books, obviously. I'm a big reader. And so I was leafing through the book one day, and I noticed that there were just you know all these chapters. It's hard not to notice that. So I ended up counting them. There, there turned out to be 361 chapters, as you said. So I was like, all right. So just for the rest of my life, I'm reading one chapter a day of War and Peace, and I've been doing it ever since. And, and how many years is that? It's about 10 years now. That's amazing. 
Yep. That's amazing. Later, I want to remember to ask you what else you're reading, but uh, in your commentary, so I mentioned you have a commentary, so you, it's available on Kindle for anybody who's looking. Brian's book on Kindle is titled War and Peace and a Year of War and Peace. The Kindle edition includes the entire text of the novel, as well as an excellent chapter-by-chapter commentary by Brian. The commentary thus far has touched on the traits of Russians, French, Germans, Italians, and the English. Also, the science of war, Tolstoy's use of natural landscapes in his prose, cruelty in war, the great man theory, the narrative fallacy, the importance of reading both history and fiction, and also, interestingly, Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris, and the futility of the New York Mets, plus lots of literary and biblical references. Really great. Highly recommended. On day 187, which I just read this morning, I think it was, uh, there's some commentary uh, that you include that refers to War and Peace um, as a singular combination of history and fiction, which I thought was just perfect, perfect description, because there are parts of it that, of course, are accurate to history, although the characters are fictional. In addition to large numbers of fictional characters, there are also, of course, a number of historical characters in the novel, including, most notably, Napoleon himself. What is it that appealed to you? Is it the history side or the fiction side, or is it the combination? It's a combination, but I would put more weight on the, the fiction side, because I just find that these characters and the trials and tribulations that they go through are just very insightful. It really gives you a bleak, but but also an uplifting portrait of, of the human condition. We're going to see more of the bleakness coming up in the second half, because as you know, like we're on, I think, day 188, maybe 187. Yep. And, um, you know, Napoleon's invasion of 1812 has just started. And, and that's when, you know, things turn south for these Russians. So we'll get into that. We'll get into that shortly. So uh, when I ask people, when I mention to people that I'm reading War and Peace, those who have not read it, of course, say it's daunting and roll their eyes. And I talk about the chapter by chapter approach. I don't know if anyone's picked me up, picked me up on that suggestion yet. But friends who have read it, I think uniformly, uh, immediately talk about the characters and talk about their love for Pierre. And so far, I'm I'm not yet in love with Pierre. I'm I'm intrigued by how much people like Pierre. When people talk about their favorite characters, do you immediately go to Pierre? Well, I'll just say that when you said that you're not drawn to Pierre, I almost hung up the phone. So yeah, I, I love this guy. <laughs> he he's he is fantastic. I mean, this is a man who shows up early in the novel, ties a policeman to a bear, and then throws them both into a river. So I like that part. But go ahead. Then later on, as um, as we've just seen recently in, in the novel, through some combination of mysticism, numeracy, and crazy biblical exegesis, he decides that he is the sole individual responsible for murdering Napoleon. You, you just can't get this type of passion for life and raw insanity anywhere else than you can in Pierre. I mean, aside from Don Quixote, this is your man when you want to look at the full gamut of the human experience. Pierre Bezikoff, for me, I will never tire of reading him. Although he wasn't my favorite when I first read the novel. My, my favorite when I first read was uh, Prince Andrew. I, I was a little bit younger, so you know, I was into his uh, brooding masculinity. But, uh, but now it's Pierre, sure. So the characters change over the course of the novel. It, 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 the novel takes place over a long period of time. And I see Pierre developing, but I'll, I'll, I'll withhold judgment, and I'm glad 
you haven't hung up the phone yet. Thank you. Uh, the <laughs> the the other characters uh, of the other characters who who is well, you said um, Prince Andrew early uh, when you were younger, but are there others that uh, you find remarkable? Prince Andrew's sister, Princess Mary, I find remarkable, and a lot of people don't because a lot of people will say that she's a little bit of a cardboard character and that she doesn't go through much change. She's not dynamic, but I don't find that to be true at all. In fact, I I find that her character, and um, I won't get too deep into it because some of this is revealed in the second half, but her character has a deep and abiding faith, which enables her to maintain mental tranquility throughout all the vicissitudes of life, which um, which befall her in this novel. That, that includes uh, an emotionally abusive father, an emotionally absent brother, and you know, Napoleon invading uh, her homeland. So th- these are all terrible things that are happening to her. And if you look at the novel and you look at her role in it, she's the one that kind of anchors it. She's the one who remains calm in the face of all this adversity, which I think is, is, is rather admirable. So I'm, I'm drawn to her. But quite frankly, Howard, I'm drawn to all the major characters. I, I just I just love every one of them. They each present, um, I think, you know, lessons for, for readers on how to deal with uh, adversity in life. But hers, I think, is the strongest, and it's rooted in her in her. I guess she's an Orthodox, you know, a Russian Orthodox. Hi, hi, highly, highly religious, right? Right. Yeah, and it's it's not a um, it's not a superficial r- religious belief either. It's deep and abiding, and it manifests in a lot of charity. So, if you recall the Godfolk, that's already occurred. She she helps these pilgrims out all the time, even right. though her father tells her not to and abuses her, and everyone mocks her for helping these uh these poor people. She does it, and you know she. Before her brother goes off to war, she gives him an icon, thoroughly believing that this will protect him. I mean, we can look at that objectively and scientifically and say, unless that's going to stop a bullet from piercing your chest, now it's not going to, it's not going to help you. But it, it, it was an honest, it was an honest effort to give her brother solace in, in his time of, uh, you know, distress. I mean, he's going to fight Napoleon. So I just, I just really enjoy her. I think that she, she's a good person, and I like reading about her. Uh, I look forward to reading more about her. So in. In the chapter we're in, I think, as you said, it's 187, just completed this morning. So we're in 1812. Uh, the war is heating up again. Uh, there, the um, And it's interesting reading this novel and reading it from the Russian's point of view. And I find myself rooting for Russia against France, which is not what I would think I would be doing at any point in time. But this novel, of course, is written from a Russian point of view. Uh, So we are in 1812, and earlier, several chapters ago, I believe, there was a reference to the comet. And I recall recall seeing on Broadway and not fully understanding uh, a play, I think it was called Natasha and Pierre, or Pierre and Natasha and the Great Comet of 1812. Did you see right. it? Did you see it, or do you know of that? I, I know of it, but I did not see it. No. Can you talk about the comet at all? And, and Pierre, I think it was Pierre's—I'll call it—relationship with the comet. Yeah, I've always read the comet as kind of a symbol of his, the launching of his relationship with Natasha. So I won't get into any spoilers, although maybe I already have with what I'm saying right now. But if you'll recall, in that chapter, that is the one where N- Natasha has recently undergone. A radical change of character because she fell to the rake Anatoly Karagin yeah. while she was engaged to Prince Andrew. And this has thrown her off completely. She's an emotional wreck. And Pierre, who himself is involved in a, I would say it's an abusive relationship. His wife is um, not kind, not really intelligent, and just mean-spirited. And it's pretty clear that she's cheating on him. 
But Pierre's such a good man that he wouldn't even think about, uh, you know, cheating on her. And yet he's clearly in love with Natasha when he goes to talk to her about, about her problems. And he wishes that he could be there more for her. And then he walks out after talking with Natasha and trying to make her feel better to an empty street in, I think it's Moscow. They're in Moscow, right? Yeah, they're not in Petersburg. They're in Moscow. And uh, he looks up into the sky and he sees the Great Comet of 1812. And I think that's supposed to represent sort of like his North Star, I guess. And, 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 and that is Natasha for me, anyway. What did you think about it? Well, I, I, I thought it was interesting. And I, don't, I, I think that came after, was it Prince Andrew looking up at the sky at one point and uh, yeah. feeling, feeling comfort? Yeah, so what happens with that, I mean, that's another beautiful passage, too. That is when Prince Andrew suffers his first wound at the Battle of Austerlitz. He's wounded by, by oh, cannon yes, fire. Oh, yes, 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 yes. As, he, as he's running with a, with a standard flag um, to attack the French, and he's essentially killed. I mean, he ends up surviving, spoiler alert. But, um, well, but it sounds like he is killed when, when you read it. Right. He's looking up at the sky, and he, and he finally comes to understand that all life is vanity. The things that he was so worried about and brooding over in his previous life in society in Russia, when set against what he calls the lofty infinite sky, are absolutely nothing and meaningless. And this is straight out of um, Ecclesiastes and, and the Bible. So there are religious uh, undertones to this novel. And so that, that's his lofty sky. And, you know, as he convalesces and he becomes more involved with society again, he, he'll frequently look to the sky and try to recapture uh, that moment in his life. And sometimes he succeeds, sometimes he, he fails. And then my recollection is, is, I thought it was Prince Andrew again, or maybe it was Natasha there's someone else who was looking up at the sky. What you did, the, the um, vignette you just recited is, is probably the main one. But was there someone else looking up at the sky? Is that something Tolstoy That's, does? Yeah, so this is, this is a motif throughout the, throughout the film. Uh, throughout the, I'm sorry, uh, the Through, novel. Throughout the book. Yeah, we can talk about the film. Yeah, well, actually, I've only seen um, one of them. The, I can't pronounce the Russian director's name. But um, what I was going to say, it's a, it's a comment, it's a, recurring motif throughout the novel because Natasha, she is at her country home in Otradano. I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm very bad at it with um, anything that's not Hispanic or, or Anglo. And Prince Andrew has just come to visit on, I guess we'll call it an errand for his father. He, he's come to talk to, to Natasha's father about some administrative matter for the county or whatever. And then Andrew is in the floor below Natasha. Natasha's above and she's out on her windowsill. And she looks out at the sky and she sees the moon and she starts, you know, to, um, to talk romantically about the moon and how she just wants to float up there and whatnot. So Andrew has the sky, Natasha has the moon and Pierre has the, uh, the comet. And I'm trying to think when Nicholas Rostov has anything to do with the sky. I just, I don't think he does. I don't think he looks at the sky for anything. No. Which probably says something about his, um, yes, it says something about him. Yeah, his aspirations are more secular, more worldly. Yeah, that's probably right. Now, um, yeah. so I was—I can't remember how. Well, actually, I remember that when last year at the beginning of the pandemic, I came across uh, something on Twitter. There was a uh, Princeton professor who was reading the book, reading the novel. 10 to 15 pages a day. So that's even more than a chapter a day because the chapters are usually very short. And uh, she was tweeting her impressions every day and she got a very large following. It was Princeton professor and award-winning novelist Yi Yun Lee, who at the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020, started a War and Peace online book club 
contemplating that readers would take about 30 minutes a day to read 15 to 16 pages in order to complete the novel in 85 days. In September of this year, Professor Lee is publishing a guide and companion to War and Peace called Tolstoy Together, 85 Days of War and Peace with Yi Yun Lee, which will include her daily observations on the novel. Professor Lee is also starting a new online War and Peace book club in September. And I only, only came across that after several months. She was into it for several months, and I thought about it for a moment and decided not to go back and catch up. But I was aware of that, and then I can't remember what brought uh, War and Peace back to my attention this year, but uh, maybe somebody referred me to or I came across uh, the Andrew Lewis podcast, uh, which I'm going to ask you to talk about in a moment. But I decided that... Um, I could, I, I set out a schedule for myself and to catch up by June 30, I actually ca- caught up um, a month earlier just by reading a, two or three chapters a day, which again, are very short. And now I'm reading a chapter a day. But, right. I, but I was pleased to uh, link into that and then to link into your commentary, which I find so helpful. Uh, do you know Ander? I, I know you know of him, but do you know him? Have you followed him on his podcast? I appeared on his podcast for one episode um, two years ago, I believe it was. Oh. So I know, I don't know him personally aside from that, but um, he's been a big part of the, the subreddit, A Year of War and Peace, yes. that someone started. So um, that, that's how I know him. Yeah. I also like he's doing a translation um, yes. into, uh, into like Australian slang. It's pretty good. Right, like. right. That is In fact, when, he, when he's done with it, I'm going to make that my reading one year. Oh, that, sure. oh, that'll be good. That'll be good. So yeah. Andrew Lewis uh, is, a, my, my impression is he's a young man. He's a young man. Well, he said, he, just recently, I think he said he's 32, I think, uh, from Australia, who uh, he's undertaking uh, an effort to read all of the books on uh, the Hemingway list, a list that Ernest Hemingway drew up uh, for an aspiring writer. And one of them was War and Peace. And and I guess in every case, he's reading these books a chapter a day. And he's got a daily podcast where he comments on them. And uh, I think actually your commentary might be on the Reddit, uh, LinkedIn on the Reddit, I think. Yeah, so that's an interesting undertaking as well. Your commentary refers to, just as you did a moment ago, to biblical passages and lots of other literature. In in, in every respect, you sound as if you're very well read. What are you currently reading, aside from aside from War, War and Peace, a chapter a day? That's right, One Piece, obviously. I'm also reading Emil Zola's Potluck. I'm reading through the entire Le Raison Macart uh, novel cycle which is a 20-novel cycle set against the backdrop of the Second Empire. And Zola is fantastic. I was introduced to his work by a friend who lent me a copy of Germinal. That novel is fantastic. It's, it's one of the greatest novels I've ever read. And if you get an opportunity, you should start with that one. And if you like it, you should continue reading the entire cycle because it's all great. And um, it's just really great. It's, it's a fantastic novel. I'm also reading Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new novel by Quentin Tarantino based on his... Uh, this film. Wow. Yeah. And then First Principles by Thomas Ricks, I believe his name is. It's a, an examination of the American founders' fascination with and influenced by the, um, the ancient Greeks and Romans and, and their literature. It's pretty interesting. I like it. That's quite a list, reading them all at the same time. Yeah, so typically I like to be reading one nonfiction piece and the fiction piece in addition to my war and peace stuff. 
And because I love Quentin Tarantino films and I really like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and it just came out, I, I decided to, to add that into the mix. That's great. And are you reading physical books? Yes, I only read, well, not only, but for the most part, I only read physical books. I was an early adopter, the Kindle, the, the first generation, but I found quickly that um, retention wasn't that well with me. I just, I just couldn't, I don't know, it, it, it didn't have the same effect on me. There's something about the, the tactile nature of books. I don't, I don't even know what it is. I just feel no, more comfortable I, with the books, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And I think you're right, it's the tactile nature of the book, I think. And are these books coming from libraries, or do you have favorite bookstores that you like to go to? So I have a local bookstore, Astoria Bookshop here in Astoria, which I go to frequently. I also order from Amazon, and that, that's pretty much it, those two. And sometimes I'll go, I'll go to a library, but I prefer to own books. Yeah. Um, because I don't believe that a book is read unless it's written in, so <laughs> I, I, I feel bad if, if I write in library books, what? which I've done. Again, <laughs> I, don't feel good. I don't feel good about doing it. It's not so writing in books, um, I have no objection. I think it's a good thing. I've, I've always underlined, and I'm reading one of the books I'm reading now, I'm underlining constantly. But a lot of times when I'm reading, I will uh, have my iPad or a laptop, and I'll write notes rather than writing in the book. No objection mm -hmm. to writing in the book, but uh, then I've always got my notes. Uh, so you know, that's the way I what? retain yeah, I should say that I do that as well. I have actually two notebooks when, I, when I'm reading. One of them is a commonplace book, so if I come across an interesting quote or whatnot, I'll just write it in there. And then the other one will be uh, similar to yours. I'll, I'll write in my own words my, my thoughts on what I'm reading. So I'll review the when, when I'm reading, I'll read the book, I'll take notes in it in the margins, I'll underline, and then when the chapter's over, I'll kind of, in my own words, write down what I learned, what it's about, if it's fiction, what the characters are doing and how they're feeling and whatnot, you know, just a quick page. And it's not even like an eight by 11 notebook. It's one of the smaller ones. I forget the exact dimensions, but I feel that that helps uh, with retention and being able to, to talk about the books in depth later with friends. You're, you're, you're doing better at that than I am. I'm to a large extent. I am lifting excerpts from, mm -hmm. from the book that I want to remember. And so I, I've done that with war and peace with, with your commentary. Uh, in many places where I'll just lift something out of it and, um, you know, I'll, I'll have that to look back at. Yeah, it helps. I suggest everyone do it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so finally, the um, War and Peace exercise, is this something you expect to continue doing? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. I, I love it. I look forward to it every day. I have um, a schedule. I wake up in the morning and when I have my, you know, pour my coffee and that's what I do. I read a chapter. Yeah. I've, I've got a similar MO now, uh, except right. I, I am on Monday. I'm also, as I mentioned in the introduction on Mondays, I also read a Hemingway short story. Uh, I listen. Uh, what do you think of those? Uh, they're fascinating. And, and some of them are very short, shorter than the uh, war and peace chapters. Uh, yesterday right. was yesterday, Monday. Yeah. Yesterday's Mon yesterday's short story was not only short two pages, but it was called, a very short story. Okay. I don't recall that one. I've read his short works, but I don't recall that one. It, it's, it's fascinating to be doing this on a schedule, and I haven't yet taken a deep breath and reflected back. I've thought a little bit, but I haven't thoroughly reflected back on what I've read. Uh, I will do that. Um, there's a lot with uh, Nick Adams, of course, his, uh, his uh, semi-autobiographical or maybe fully autobiographical character that he 
continues to come back to. And so, as I said, I, I'm learning a lot about, uh, learning from and about this guy. And I find the commentaries that are written are, are very, very good. Uh, there's so much that people have written about Hemingway. And the same thing, of course, with War and Peace and with Tolstoy. So uh, it's interesting to be re- doing both at the same time. Yeah, Hemingway is one of my first authors that I really fell in love with when I, when I was younger. That's I great. I like him a lot. Yep. Yeah. Um, how, how do you feel about his style? Is this your first time reading him? No, I, I've read uh, his novels. Um, but but you know, I, I'm focusing more on his style, so I referred to my writing journey just beginning. So I'm, I'm doing some writing um, in, in the nature of vignettes, uh, which maybe will be a memoir at some point years down the road. But uh, And I... I'm pleased to be on a path where I'm being tight with my language. But when I read him, I, I tighten, tighten up even more. Uh, and I read a Stephen, Stephen King uh, book on writing. I think he said something like, you know, you, your second draft is 50% of the words of your first draft. And I like that. Mm-hmm. I, I like the, the additional thought and tightness that you give to what you're trying to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I find that fascinating. So, um, I wanted to end with a quote uh, that, yeah. You know, so, it's definitely from you. Uh, on day one seventy nine, uh, you were referring to N- Natasha, and uh, having learned that uh, you're from Long Island, and I understood that gave me an understanding of of what you said here. Uh, you said in the commentary, Natasha suffers from what contemporary doctors of psychology call being a hot mess. That's Latin, of course, for the girl's head isn't on right. She doesn't eat. She doesn't sleep. She's pale, ravaged by a persistent cough, and her spirits are lower than a Mets fan in October. I love that. <laughs> yeah, you're a Yankee fan. I bet you do. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's right. Brian, thank you very much. I loved our discussion. Uh, I hope we can talk again. Uh, at the end of the year, if not before, at the end of the at the end of my first war and peace journey, and I appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Howard. I appreciate it too. Thanks for having me on. Follow us on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com, on Instagram and Twitter at bookwormsitw, and on Facebook at bookwormsinthewild. And DM me to tell me what you're reading or email me at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie provides overall creative direction, and Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. Carol, of course, is my muse. Two-year-old Jake continues to encourage the podcast, as does Jake's baby cousin, Francesca. Welcome to the podcast team, Frankie. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests, although not today. Thanks to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. And thanks as well to AJ Falari, who is working on the editing with me. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments, either directly on the podcast or 
at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.